welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast, Episode 27. Relationships, a catalyst for growth and recovery. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, and this is episode 27. And you have the uh, the three practicing musketeers here, uh, uh, Bob, Doug, and John. And we're the same as we are everywhere, hopefully better, like, right? Or, you know, dealing with it. So the last one we had, we had a wonderful conversation with... Uh, Robert Augustus Masters, who's a brilliant, you know, writer, teacher, healer, guide, masculine, feminine, shadow, you know, just in the whole enchilada works on a lot of stuff. So hopefully uh, um, everybody was inspired by that. And, and you know, he, he does groups. And if people have the, the wherewithal, well, they can go and practice with him or you can get into his book, which I've read. And they're just uh, uh, great. And he, he contacted me to be a man book. He asked me to write a blurb for that. And I was so honored. You know, it's like, wow, your heroes, you know, ask you yeah. to write a blurb. How cool is that? So, um, yeah, so we were thinking about maybe just kind of letting uh, Robert take us from the depth that he took us, and we can just kind of riff off of that and see where this conversation goes today, Bob. And we were kind of, before we started the program, you were talking about, so why don't you take up from there? Yeah, thank you, John. I'd love to pick up on that. Uh Robert's presentation speaks for itself. He, he speaks from such a depthful place. One of the one of the comments that he made it was towards the end of his presentation, and I think it was in response to either a question you asked, John, or maybe one you asked, Doug. Uh, and it certainly was implied in something that you talked about. How do we get the courage to face our shadow? And and once having that courage, what do we do? I think it was both of you guys' questions actually. And Robert's response in that period of of his sharing with us was that he, that he has a, a transparent openness with his wife where she'll identify things and vice versa, and they'll bear themselves to one another to be able to work on the shadow in real time. And I was really struck by that, and I was listening closely as he was talking about it, and I wanted to bring that back as one piece that we could talk about today is, is A, the incentive that's provided uh, in our centermost relationships, in our marriages, in our closest friendships, is that, as I was sharing with John and with Doug earlier, in some ways, that's the only thing that provides me the, the motivation or, in your words, Doug, the courage to face my shadow is that it matters so much to me to maintain a healthy relationship with my partner, Colleen. And so certainly 90% of the shadow work I do is in relationship to her, and I think that we aspire to the kind of relationship Robert was talking about with his wife. I was just thinking about that, that, that I get to be the beneficiary of that work with Colleen. And it's just about, that's about the only thing that would compel me. The other 10% would probably be my relationship to my daughter as, as her father. I don't mean to assign percentages, but it's, it's in my central, central relationships, starting with family and then moving out to you guys, you, John, you, Doug, the intimacy that we have is that there's an accountability and also an incentive. I want to stay clean with you guys and clear and be the best friend, the best colleague, the best father, the best partner I can be. So I just wanted to toss that out there. I think it was profound. He literally spoke about it for 30 seconds, but it really landed powerfully for me. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and, and you can't always have that kind of relationship with everyone, especially the people that you would like to like your parents, your brothers and sisters, you know, your natural family. And so we really have to find uh, often, you know, and sometimes it's in the family and that's a great blessing when we have that, but often not, yeah, especially, right. you know, people suffer from addiction. I mean, maybe, maybe they have more dysfunctional families than others. I don't know. I see dysfunction across, you know, almost everybody, uh, you know, generally speaking. And in what is dysfunctional family? So family doesn't really support and love the person and help you to become the best version of yourself, whether it's the kid supporting dad to be himself, mom to be herself, children, brothers and sisters, and stuff like that. And William Glasser, who wrote a reality therapy, which was a really foundational book for, for wilderness therapy. He wrote another book. I can't remember the name of it, but I remember he said, you know, there's like a handful, you know, five, maybe 10 relationships in your life, but how you negotiate the relationship is going to, really determine largely if you have a happy life or not, if you have, you know, an authentically happy life. And so those intimate relationships are super important. And when you're used to that kind of relationship or that depth, and that's what I like about the recovery movement is usually you find people that really open up and there's a lot of depth there. When you get outside of that kind of, you know, sacred space and most people can't relate on that level. And if you don't have places where you can get deep in your relationship, you just get left lonely you know, for lack of connection and intimacy and that kind of intimacy, it takes work, it takes following your face, having arguments, feeling hurt, coming back, you know, and working through to, uh, to this real depth that, you know, will, will stand and weather the storms of life and whatever comes up. John, I, uh, really appreciate what you said there about, um, not every relationship is going to be right for that. You can't have that kind of relationship with anybody. There's something truly special about, having that kind of sacred relationship. And there's an understanding that needs to be in place, either implicit or explicit, that both of you are going to express that kind of vulnerability in, in a way that is safe and authentic and the person with whom you are in the relationship is amenable to that. It's, it's very much a, a mutual relationship there and needs to be understood because it's not always okay or safe to express yourself with that degree of vulnerability. That doesn't give us license, though, and I'm just exploring this thought now, so I would love to hear your feedback on it, but that doesn't give us license to continue to hide the things either. We need to continue to be the truest expression of ourselves that we can within that context, lest we cut ourselves off again from our truth and and our fullest, uh, to use Robert's from a full-blooded embodiment of being in the world. Years ago, I, I read a book by a, a Swiss Jungian analyst. His name is, I love saying his name, it's Adolf, Adolf Guggenbühl Craig. His, his name is Guggenbühl. He was married to a Scottish woman, Craig, and I got to go to uh, Zurich and meet him. I met with, with him and his wife uh, years ago, and we spoke about this. This is one of the really uh, formative books for me in marriage therapy. The book is called Marriage Dead or Alive. It's translated into English with that terminology. But Guggenbill Craig made this, this uh, point in his book. It's, it's, it's a, a core point, is that most people marry, and I would say most people have friends, that the goal is harmony, and there's not a thing to be ashamed about. I just want to get along, have fun, and uh, uh, peace is really what I'm looking for. He's says, for whatever reason, some small percentage of people have this in their marriage. Some people have this in their best friendships. He says, as opposed to, 
to where we're going to decide to be married, decide to be friends. He called this, he called that a decisional marriage. He says this other marriage or this other friendship would be an individuation marriage. And the idea there that he talks about is that it's in that relationship, whether it's our closest friends, whether it's family, and both of your um, uh, cautions are well taken. It's really so selective, I think. But there are certain relationships, if we're fortunate in this lifetime, like with Glasser, John, there are certain relationships in which we can actually individuate, that we can actually grow to our fullest potential. And it's those, whether it's in a marriage or a friendship, count yourself blessed. I think if you have one of those in your lifetime, honest to goodness. Um, uh, and, and I think that Guggenbill Craig lays the path out there for marriage. And what he says, he says that marriage therapists will oftentimes treat marriages that come in because they're characterized by friction. But you've got to differentiate between one kind of friction, which is the kind that's just basically devolutionary, versus the kind that is required to grow. Uh, we bump up against each other in our friendships or in our healthiest relationships as spurs towards growth. And if we go to a therapist that's hell-bent on fixing friction, then we're hamstrung. And so I really appreciated what he had to say. And I think I do, I do apply this to my central relationships. If we have to bump up against each other, and that's for the sake of transcendence or for uh, transformation. I want that. I want that. I liked how Robert said uh, that kind of friction, or he talked about it in terms of, of anger, it's with heart. And that really characterizes the best relationships. If we bump up against each other, it's with compassion. It's with love. John, you know I love you. So if we have a collision, it'll be love that informs that more deeply than any content that we'd ever talked about. Yeah. Same with you, Doug. And I think that that's... That's the pearl of great price. Is there love? Is there heart? You know, Bob, I, uh, I met my wife about six months after getting sober. Um, mm -hmm. So very fairly early on there. And I had come to a place where I was far more content with being me than I had ever been in the past and that I was going to be myself, my authentic self and people could like me or weren't right for me. And that was okay. I was going to be true to who I was. And I vowed that in developing my relationship with her, I was going to bring forward that truth, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful. And so when she very early would ask me difficult questions where previously my tendency would have been to skirt around the answers or say something in the way that we do when we're first getting to know others of, of trying to present myself as better or different or Whatever what you think, I, what you think she would want you to be. That's that's exactly what you right. are. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. I, I made the decision that I was going to lean into it with honesty and authenticity, and it has allowed our relationship to continue to be. I'm going to use the word alchemical in that way of transmuting the crap into gold. Um, <laughs> it's, it's beautiful, you know. And, and of course, I haven't always been 100% perfect in my adherence to that resolution, but I continue to strive and, and do the best that I can every day with it. And it certainly is challenging and rewarding and, and a wonderful part of my life in every way. There's something that Robert said uh, in his presentation. It relates to exactly what I think you're saying uh, right now, Doug. And I feel this very much, in my, very much in my relationship to Colleen, is that it scares the crap out of me to, to make myself vulnerable. Far easier for me just to be pissed just be pissed, be right. And I can go there in a second and Colleen could verify that. <laughs> I can go there in a second. But there's a deeper impulse. And thank goodness for this, you guys, is there's something inside that comes in. And sometimes it takes me 
20 minutes, sometimes it takes me hours, sometimes it takes me overnight to come back to a place of humility and to say, here's my shit that, that I want to I wanna own. I want to withdraw whatever I was projecting onto and own my part. And there's no agenda for her to do a damn thing other than just to be with my vulnerability. That always is the turning point for me. And that's a miracle to me. Doug, I'm right with you. I've never done this before in a relationship until this, this particular relationship. And it's consistently the case. In fact, uh, it's only ever the case because I can't stand the cost of, of the secrecy, the hiding, the superiority, all the bullshit that I've done my entire life. I can't do that anymore. And the payoff is that you have authentic intimacy. And as Robert said, not only with Colleen, but with myself. <laughs> and you have to keep showing up, too. It requires a daily, sometimes hourly recommitment to fully showing up in that way, lest we yeah. slide back into the easier well, yeah. they're not really easier in the long run kind of patterns. And for you and I being in recovery, uh, sorry, John, I just want to finish no, this talk. Ahead, but for you and I in recovery, just came up yesterday in a meeting, is that it's, it, at least as I see it for me, and I bet you too, Doug, it's not an optional. And John, I want to include you too, because you've been open about your own suffering, your own darkness. It's not an optional for me. Uh, I, and there's something about it that's very bracing. If I fuck with this, uh, this could be fatal. It's like, it's just non-optional for me. And so that really puts things where the art is a priority. Thanks, so the, John. I just the, wanted the, to answer that. The lower left is not a lifestyle choice. It's just, it's a, it's an actual mortal area of concern. You've got well to do put. it. Yeah. Well put. I think you know, and, right. and I'm, I, I haven't said much. I'm not very good on all this stuff. You know, my, my thing is, uh, you know, I don't you, you usually scream and get mad and, you know, throw things around. I usually withdraw. That's my, my defense. And I'm just like, I'm, man, I'm not going to get hurt. And, uh, you know, my, my sun sign astrology, that's the first typology I studied at. When I was like 13. I was reading Linda Goodman's sun signs, looking at everybody, trying to figure them all out, but I'm a cancer, you know, and the, the archetype of the cancers of the crab, little claws, tough shell and tender meat inside. So yeah. Um, uh, man, yeah, really, really scary stuff. That vulnerability. And I think one of the ways I dealt with it for years, I was traveling you know, all the time when I was 14. And so I would never stick around long enough to get really deep relationships going. And I would just leave really wonderful people sometimes, sometimes not. But, uh, and, and, I, and then when I started getting older, you know, I'm really, I don't have that many old friends, you know, guys, you know, in the Rolling Stone gathering no moss. And at a certain point I said, well, you know, you just got to cultivate these things. And yes, you're a big chicken. Bah! You know, I get my relational chicken. <laughs> and just you're like, oh my God, you know, you, you have this image of being this big, tough military police, martial artist, you know, wilderness guide. The truth is inside. <laughs> you know, <it's> just, <laughs> because the relational stuff. And, uh, and so you have to cultivate these relationships as you you got a you got a happy failure, John, because you're connected. I'm going to introduce another typology, gentlemen. You you're connected to somebody, John. Once we met, I'm never going to leave you, and so you can rolling stone all you want to. I'm going to track your ass down. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, one of the typologies, and we might have referred to it before, but it comes out of out of attachment theory, is that. Uh, that there's a pretty even divide between those who are uh, insecurely attached insofar as that they will track you down, is yeah. that these are people that want to chase you, sue, um, uh, fuse, all of that. And that would be moi. That would be me. That's my own style of manifest that way. And uh, uh, 
anybody that's been close to me, and particularly Colleen, can vouch for that. Having said, well, my daughter Amanda from birth on, she could just tell it was like she had to kind of create a space because daddy's kind of intense. The, the flip side of that would be uh, a dismissive attachment style, which is it, it, it responds to anxiety by moving away. I move towards John based on what you just said, you move away. Yep. And the tricky, the tricky part is that they're both anxious. You don't look anxious when you're dismissive. I'm, I'm just saying this generally. When I'm doing always, my, my chicken impression, I don't seem anxious. I no. <laughs> Self-assured chicken there. My anxiety, is, my anxiety is worn on my sleeve, so to speak. And dismissive will look kind of nonchalant, like what, me worry? The fact is, is that if you do a, 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 a study of galvanic skin response, for example, you and I would be equally anxious just manifesting it in different typologies. So having said that, the courage it takes for you to say what you're doing, including the the clucking <laughs> is, is, is great. And it's the same kind of courage it takes for me to come down off of my angry tirade and a prideful uh, whatever stance and humble myself. It's extremely difficult for me to do that as it is for Colleen to move against her more dismissive nature or for you to do that. We're both left with having to, we're both left facing this with grit or courage. It takes tremendous courage. For you to come back, it takes tremendous courage for me to chill. Yeah. And would you say a little more, Bob, about attachment theory? I think it's really important that we kind yeah. of have bring that into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you what I know by heart. I'm, I'm feeling unprepared only so far as I've been immersed in it in years gone by and haven't been for about the last five. So I, I, I own up to that. I just real quick sketch is that uh, uh Dating back to the 1940s and 50s, John Bowlby in England began to research mothers and their infants looking at, at, at what happens, especially to orphaned children. That be, it began with that. The conventional wisdom in psychoanalysis is that whatever's going on inside of us is going on inside of us, and it's not, it's not rooted in relationship. And so uh, uh, he was actually knighted for his work, uh, extraordinary work that he did to really situate our psyches uh, in the in-between, kind of the way that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about we aren't, it's not that we are, we enter are. That was what Bulby was doing. That's a profound nice. respect for attachment. I think the term is unfortunate. <laughs> uh, attachment, uh, psychology can come up with the worst terms for things. And so what psychology means by attachment is intimacy or connection and the between. And I, I prefer that, that understanding, but that's what attachment refers to. Now, there's been decades of research, starting with infants and children, and then more recently, in the last uh, 20 years, a tremendous amount of research looking at adult attachment. And so that's, that's been illuminating, and that's what I was referring to, is, is that uh, you can find this in infancy. If we took little Bobby and little Johnny and little Dougie <laughs> and observed our interactions uh, in an experimental setting with uh, other adult figures, you can plot very quickly how we respond. And so without getting too smug about it, John might have responded by moving away from a situation or shutting down. Bob would have become increasingly agitated and anxious, given a situation that would, that would uh, uh, question the security. They actually have something called the strange situation where you're put in a room and, and somebody comes in that you don't know and how you respond to that says a lot about who you are. They've also done experiments with what happens when your mother averts her gaze from you, John. It would go a certain way. For me, it would go a different way. 
Now, what's interesting about the adult attachment literature, and then I'll, then I'll pause, is that, is that those styles endure across a lifetime without intervention. And so the way that little Johnny and Bobby were at age one and two is exactly how we'll be at age 61 and 62 without intervention. And thank goodness for psychological and spiritual resources and so on to develop um, uh, different forms of attachment where you can heal that. But for many people, that early development really predicts their destiny. So if you had a, a good enough relationship with a mom and dad, for example, mm-hmm. you know, or primary mm-hmm. caregivers, or you have mm-hmm. two dads and a gay family, whatever, I'm not just trying to make mm-hmm. this all sexist, mm-hmm. but then, then you're able to, to be a little healthier in your own attachment because your early yeah. needs for connection yeah. and, and reflection have been met. Yes. Yeah. The statistics on this are encouraging and I can't cite them. And I, I, you've mentioned this earlier. My view is so skewed because I've worked with clinical populations my entire life. And I come from a background that bred insecure attachment. So that's my lens. And I want to own up to that. The, the statistics generally, for example, the American population, I wish I could quote this exactly, but I'll give you a ballpark. Two thirds of people have secure attachment. Two thirds of people walking around have a secure attachment. It's just that I don't see those people in therapy more often than not. The people I see or people that I work with in addiction, including me, almost everyone in addiction with the background in addiction. That's right. Have what are referred to as adverse childhood experiences. And if you don't, if you don't have that attachment, you know, you didn't, weren't able mm-hmm. to connect with your primary mm-hmm. thing and, and get what you needed as a child or an infant, then yeah. that's a vast area of pain. Yeah. And, and yeah. man, the, the instant relief of drugs and alcohol can be mm-hmm. so, you know, just like, Oh, it's like mommy and daddy are finally there. You know, yes. I mean, you're yeah. actually protecting. So if yeah. you're going to get well and not kill yourself on these drugs, you know, and that may yeah. get you started Then the whole, you know, the chemical and the brain stuff kicks in. I mean, yeah. the, the, yeah. the, the, the uh, uh, compulsivity of it, but that's a huge thing. You know, yes. we're going to be, yeah. we have to go back. We have to heal that. And we do it with support from others. Like you said, that's an inner outer thing. Like Dick Nahan was saying, you know, but we can, we can't go back and, uh, I was so necessary. I was so aware in my addiction, and Doug, you might want to speak to this if you both feel comfortable. I'm not sure I feel comfortable, but I'm going to go for it. <laughs> Speaking of courage, is that I was so aware in the earliest of my addiction around drinking that I would drink to sate that particular, uh, uh, or maybe assuage that particular uh, uh, fear or that pain inside of loneliness, abandonment, and so on. I was very conscious of it until I think, like you said, John, the chemistry eventually kicked in with alcohol and other drugs to where you don't even have the luxury to connect up while you're doing it. You're just doing it. But I remember in the early years, especially, I would drink in order to feel less lonely. And that could be with people. I could be with people and feel like we're not going to connect because of my style, my insecure style and so on. It manifests differently for somebody. I would drink very consciously to not have to feel what it feels like to be disconnected from others. And that's pathetic, but that's the truth. That's the truth. Yeah, feeling alone in a room full of people very much describes my experience in the past and to some degree still, although I am getting much, much better with it. Um, That was a large part of the reason why I used as well. I wonder, Bob, according to uh, attachment theory and the research and the work you've done, what does a healthy relationship, a healthy attachment look like? We've talked about these two streams of, you know, avoiding or leaning too deeply. And then what does the healthy balance look like? In two words, it's emotional responsiveness. And uh, that's, that's a psychology term, but, but we talk about it in terms of earlier with Robert, we were talking about empathy. Uh, John, you were talking about Judith Orloff, you know, empathy, compassion, 
uh, uh, sometimes it's referred to as affect attunement, being able to tune into somebody's emotions. But it means, it means having central caregivers, ideally earliest on, but across our lifespan. There's no time at which we don't need that. Somebody that actually responds to what we say and feel uh, with care and concern, with heart, to quote uh, Robert, and also with accuracy. In other words, if I care about what you're feeling, Doug, it's not enough for me to listen to you and be reading the newspaper. It means really showing up, and it means showing up with humility so that if I miss what you're saying, I'm not so insecure inside that I can't be corrected by you. To say, Bob, that wasn't exactly it. And this is why I think skillfully attuned therapy can be so powerful in vivo. I mean, in the moment, is that you're sitting with somebody who's invested in understanding you and not so invested that they can't be corrected. And so you have these corrective emotional experiences, thousands of them uh, across therapy, and, and, and can part, make a part difference. Of, part of the job of the of the good good enough therapist is to be that yeah. mom and dad surrogate to give you those that kind of responsiveness yes. that you didn't get, you know. Which is really weird if you've never had it, and all of a sudden there's a person that's really giving you that. Yeah. They're really tuned yeah. in. It's like, oh wow, you know, this is yeah. this is like yeah. scary as hell. But I think I like it. You know, it's yeah. like, oh Here, here's an example of it. Here's an example of how that can go, John, in therapy. And you've been on both sides of this. Is that uh, when I have a session with a client where we're really tuned in, and let's say to something that's really um, deeply felt, is that at the end of the session, I'll oftentimes say you may well have a, a, a bitter aftertaste after this. You may find yourself contracting after this because what we've just done is something new in your experience, like what you just said, John. If this hasn't been your habitual experience, having empathic presence, actually, uh, psychology has the term, it's ego dystonic. It's not syntonic with your ego. It's actually uh, aversive. And so I prepare, I prepave this with clients to say, if you have a negative reaction and it's somewhat predictable, I want you to call me, I want you to email me, whatever it is, and, and I want to normalize it because that's to be expected. You'd think that compassion would be the ticket. It's not the ticket if it's never been the ticket. It takes, it's almost like you get the bends if you're exposed to it in too much concentration. Right. So you have to do it very gradually, kind of titrate it. Does that make sense, guys? You know, I have a I have this this behavior where I will expose myself and be vulnerable sometimes in a conversation with friends or in a discussion with my wife and immediately afterwards I will feel that desire to contract and I will say to myself or think occasionally even say out loud I should talk less which is absolutely not true it's a response to that contraction the truth of the matter is I don't generally speak very much anyway but it's the way I respond to that new feeling of vulnerability and it still yeah. is an ongoing yeah. process yeah and then if you try you know you try, you try you get hurt then you then you really withdraw and it mm-hmm. just takes that much more time yeah. to yeah. come out of the shell Go, what were you going to say bob the sign of an effective therapist uh doug i'm thinking of what you just said would be to have somebody be with you right in that space you're talking about i mean you're being it to yourself right now you're being an effective therapist yourself to just observe wow what i say is i should talk less and what is that touching and an effective therapist will actually invite that or even lead the way into that. They'd say, I wonder if after you share, Doug, anything comes up and bam, there it is. And so that's where you get the intuitive skill involved in a therapist. If there's a rule to effective therapy, it might be this rupture and repair, rupture and repair. Talk about work. It's just, there's, there's no matter how good I am or you are as empathic containers, we're never getting it exactly right especially without help. And so it means always, did I get that right, Doug? 
and you go, mm, not exactly. And we find we, there's been a, minute, a miniature rupture because I'm not quite on it. And we find it, we find it, we repair until we're right on it. And that process itself is healing of whatever it is that led us to insecure attachment to begin with. Because you asked, what is, what is insecure attachment? It would be emotionally responsive, uh, uh, it'd be somebody being emotionally responsive. Well, how can you find healing in an environment that is not that? <laughs> You're right. Uh, maybe, maybe you can, but it's going to be really hard. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. maybe you can do it in some kind I think, of interior I th- process. I think you hard. can. In fact, I want to I want to correct that, John. I want to uh, share with you guys a story. Years ago, I was I had a supervisor, Bonnie Badenoch, who is a uh, uh, she's an author in attachment theory. Her background is in what's referred to as interpersonal neurobiology, and uh, focuses on the neurobiology of what goes on uh, in relationships. And she's one of the uh, experts in the nation. She actually just did the sounds true. Uh, uh, audio series. She was my supervisor for a few years. I'm very grateful to her spirit. She brought a lot of wisdom, including a feminine touch, as well as being deeply Buddhist. And so it was really a very powerful experience for me. I came to Bonnie and I said, Bonnie, she knew my style. She knew my style very well, my attachments. And I said, Bonnie, when I meditate, I just feel really fucking lonely. (laughs) And it discourages me from meditating. And rather than only feeling sorry for me. I think she might have felt sorry for me. She said, Bob, why don't you do this? And she was the one that suggested that I start bringing people into my meditations. And so that began my forgiveness practice, my loving kindness meditation, you know, the meta work and so on, which for me was absolutely necessary because my meditation was just too flippant isolating for somebody with my attachment style. And so, John, to your point is that these last 10 years now, of utilizing much more connecting interpersonal uh, meditations. Uh, I know that that's been a huge part of the healing for me. I know it because it's so palpable in my central relationships, including in my primary partnership with Colleen. And and that part's been done interiorly. So when I meditate about my mom and dad and do forgiveness work there, when I bring in my sixth grade teacher, Miss Todd, or my high school German teacher, Mr. Hayes, with gratitude in my prayers, they're with me, and you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. They're with me, and as Bonnie said, you will receive the same benefit from that as if you were sitting with them talking in person. So why wouldn't you practice that as regularly as you do all the other elements of your spiritual practice? So I bless her for that. So there's so much we can do, John. Yeah, uh, uh, looking, It looks like I'm alone when I'm sitting there on my couch in the morning. I'm not nearly alone. Not nearly alone. Yeah. There's a great term for this. They refer to it as earned security. Oh, and that's nice. I like that. Is that you can earn security in healing relationships. We're not damned by our, our, uh, uh, you know, our earliest development if it goes awry. You can earn security. And I feel like by the grace of God, over this lifetime, I'm gradually earning security by friendships with you guys, by my central relationships, and even by my meditative practice. And it's palpable. It's really palpable. Yeah, and you. I think it, once we've done that work, then we become, we become better friends, better partners, because we're not coming from that place of neediness. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. and like you know, that's like the worst word in the world to me. John, you're so needy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I am needy. I am needy, but I hate that term. And so I know, it's, it's how, how, how it started for me is I started referring to it as needful. I just had to do a different semantic. Needful didn't seem quite as negative as needy. 
And the best of it has come is that in my relationship with Colleen, she refers to me. She says, Bobby, you're not needy. You're greedy. (laughs) (laughs) I actually prefer that because it's tongue in cheek. But the idea that whatever needs you have, John, or whatever needs you have, Doug, it's who we are and that there ought to be no shame around that. And particularly if you look at backgrounds such as some of us have, maybe not all of us, where that need was not nearly satisfied, you're damn straight we're needy. There's a lot there that wants to be met, that wants to grow, that wants to be uh, um, celebrated and supported. And and I'm not going to give up until that's fully met. Yeah, you know, and, and, and oftentimes, though, when we're really wounded inside and we haven't healed, that good stuff will come start coming at us and we'll feel like it's not valid. We'll feel like they're talking about someplace else and we can't accept it. You know, somebody says, oh, man, that, you did a wonderful job there. And it's like, yeah, right. You know, and you, you have some kind of comeback or you're just like, yeah, whatever. Or, you know, or you do that inside or something because we can't, we can't feel that. We can't do that. And, and at a certain point, you know, in, in, in grad school, they taught us that when somebody says, you know, Bob, you're really just incredibly sensitive and brilliant. You know, what they taught us at grad school is say, and this is really, it was really hard. It's like, well, thanks for noticing. <laughs> and just, just try that one out, you know. Give yourself a, a compliment about something. You know, well, thanks for noticing. And it's like, <laughs> you know, at first. And then working with it, you know. And I thought immediately when they, the team, we were working dyads, I think, in the class. And I thought, this is just so stupid. Then I was like, I found it was so freaking difficult for me to deal with it. And I said, okay, maybe not so stupid. Thanks for noticing. Yeah. Maybe the two of you guys can speak into this a little bit, but how do you bridge that gap between accepting a compliment with grace, you know, thank you, instead of, instead of you know, brushing it off and denying and, oh, no, no, no. There's a difference, though, between saying thank you and believing it internally. That's a great question. You know, Doug, you wrote me something really beautiful last night, and I woke up this morning to it, and then a week before, John, you did. So I'm sitting with two people. I bless both of you for the kindness of what you sent to me uh, after my request for uh, uh, testimonials or whatever, whatever uh, you were, uh, you know, that have gone on my website. I was so deeply moved by both of what you said. And the truth is, is that I can sit now and I read both of those and I'll reread them. I already have yours, John, um, uh, and just absorb it. It goes in. But how did that get to that place for me? Because I can remember distinct uh, episodes in my life. You mentioned in graduate school. I won't go into the story right now. I can remember times where there was no capacity to receive that. Even if I said thank you, it was like Teflon inside. So what's happened for, for what you guys shared with me this week and you last night, Doug, that it goes right in and it actually stays. I can feel it. It's, it's inside of so grateful for that. How does that happen, you guys, for any of us? And Doug, I would just say to you that, you know, since you've been working with I Awake and working with Integral Recovery Podcast, you've been receiving a lot of praise and approbation yes. and richly yeah. deserved. How's that been yeah. for you? I mean, I don't know. It's 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 hard for me to. Dude, you're so precious. You're such a I mean, precious soul. You're such a precious soul right now. It's, mm-hmm. it's an ongoing process, I guess, learning to let those things in and continue to evolve it probably is related to you know self-esteem and internalized shame and healing trauma and i imagine it will continue to unfold as self-image continues to change uh, over time that's showing up and sitting with it i guess 
to relate it back to our last uh, mm-hmm. podcast with Robert, he brought up the idea of leaning into the fear and being comfortable mm-hmm. sitting with those things that scare you as a practice. And so maybe there's leaning into sitting with, I don't know, positive things that are said about you too as a way to help transform your character. And it's just the exposure. It's the experience and sitting with that vulnerability. I have a thought, Doug, as I'm listening to you, uh, and it's, it's personally true for me, is that years of doing work with my therapist, Don, where I remember early on him saying to me, he said it kindly, but, it, but it, was, it was a hard truth. He says, you don't see yourself, Bob. You don't see yourself. He saw me choosing for relationships habitually that were really ill fit for me. And, and he was right about that. I didn't see the ill fit. And... Um, uh, it took me a long time. I, I can still remember. So that wasn't that long ago. I can still remember him saying that and kind of nodding and having no fucking clue what he was talking about. You know? <laughs> but, I, but I think there's something implicit in what happened there. And I do feel this really powerfully in this relationship. The last eight years for me with Colleen is that both Don and Colleen know the gnarliest shit imaginable about me uh, in great detail. And, and, in this case, my therapist and my partner, both of them know tremendous amounts about the unsavory parts of Bob Weathers, the underside of the rock. And so when Don shares with me a positive affirmation, and certainly, most especially when Colleen does, it's in the context of knowing the whole Bob. It's not just, oh, they just see this part of me, because I disqualify that. If somebody just sees that part of me, then it's like, well, you don't know all the other shit, but they do know all the other shit. And so there's something that, at least for me, you guys, I think has been very gradually transformative where they love me and value me even amidst uh, severe human limitation that's been manifest particularly in the last 10 years in and around my addiction. Actually, I said the previous, uh, the previous 10 years, the last 10 years I've been trying to pull myself out of that hellhole. I have to add my daughter, Amanda, because Amanda has been with me through all of this loss of job, loss of license, loss of career, loss of sanity, et cetera, and has been faithful through all of, all of that. And that does something inside. Then when she expresses an appreciation, it feels like that's the real deal. And it really does go in. You guys, John, you know me from the very beginning. You and Pam, Doug, you know me. We've been transparent with each other. So when you guys share what you share with me, I don't forget the other. It's just that you remember you remember good things about me amidst all of the other. That's really healing for me. Yeah, and maybe maybe it's it's part of doing that work where we you know we face the worst of us. You know, we've gone down, and you know, and then like Robert says, you know, you get into some collective stuff. I mean, my God, you know, humanity just in general being a part of this family, the horrors that we've done, you know, I mean, collectively, as well as the wonderful stuff we've done collectively. You know, it's it's mixed bag, and I think after a while, perhaps we begin to just. Um, we just get it, you know. It's like I get praise, and immediately that part of me, oh, John, you suck. You're never going to, yeah, thanks. And you just kind of smile, and it's, it's all God, you know. If anything good comes, and it's, and I'm grateful for that, mm-hmm. and I can take it without, um, definitely without getting inflated. That's for sure. There's, <laughs> there's so many holes I've been hit with buckshot in my life so many times that I don't think that inflation happened. But it's yeah, it's still hard. I'm still working on it. Like when we, you know, these these videos and stuff, I don't watch them. I don't like to watch myself on video. You know, I just haven't gotten comfortable. I don't I get, either. I don't I, either. I don't watch them either. That's crazy. I, I, can listen, I can listen to myself 
sing. I can listen to myself play guitar. I can read, go back and read something I've written, but I can't watch these videos. So it's like, it's all in Doug's hands. You know, he could just have us be yeah. quoting Nietzsche with Donald Duck voice or something. He could be doing anything. We don't Start know. drawing little mustaches on you on the videos. <laughs> Works in progress, people. Oh, yeah. that's for sure. We're, we are fe- we are fellow journey journeyers, you know. Um. <laughs> John, you just said something that I want to touch on it because I think all three of us can identify with this. I can't remember how you put it, but um, I'll, I'll give you an example. This last Tuesday night, when I played music at a local club, and people come up and they go, "That was amazing." Um, there's a way I can accept that, but I was just realized I was listening to you, John. What makes it easier for me to accept is that I feel like it's God flowing through me, however you understand that. And so if it's in something that I say that's intelligent as opposed to unintelligent, if it's something that I play or uh, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, is that there's there's more and more of a steady uh uh, gratitude for uh, it's like if you compliment me like what I got from you last night Doug and read this morning I read that and my eyes tear up and it's just gratitude that whatever you're naming is coming through me I'm not disowning it because it's coming through me I'm so grateful for that but the pride is really tempered by the reality that this is something way beyond anything that I could possibly construct in a million lifetimes and it it so it, leaves more of a celebratory feeling rather than shrinking away from it or owning it as if aren't I the shit. It doesn't go that way very often for me. And it actually makes accepting compliments easier for me, knowing that, man, you just saw what came through. That's fucking amazing, isn't it? (laughs) It's neither a strengthening or a deflation of the ego. It's getting ego out of it entirely. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, but, you know, it's mm-hmm. like as the deeper you get into this in, in practice and we begin to mm-hmm. deal with the non-dual aspects of kind of ultimate self and being, you know, it's just like, hey, John Dupuy is God having experience of being a fucked up neurotic male, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I love you, John. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and, uh, and John's ego is as much God as B.B. King's music, you know, yes. I mean, it is, it, yeah. it is all God folks, yes. you know. So, <laughs> I think we have now irreverently and beautifully uncovered the mysteries of the universe. <laughs> you can tell you can tell on this podcast when we're approaching sacred moments because we start to get really irreverent. <laughs> That's beautifully said. Or, or completely reverent, you know, or completely reverent yeah. on the same thing. Yeah. It is all, it is all God. Mm. ultimate realization it's not a head trip it's a heart trip mm. you know when you kind of get that so well, anyway i think this is a good place to wrap it mm-hmm. gentlemen uh thank you so much and we promise to have more women we have a bunch of women lined up mm-hmm. so we'll get more feminists up here and uh mm-hmm. and as we get in touch with and and wed with our feminine self we'll become happier better men you know yeah. so and yeah. we're, we're we're working on it so anyway like again we're all uh we're all uh journeyers here whether you're you know we're not trying to put ourselves above anybody. We're just on the journey together. So, anyway, love you guys. Thank you so love much. You too, and John. we'll be back. Thank you, Tony. Awesome. <laughs>
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit IntegralRecoveryInstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.